Um, hopefully the image of fairy will not stick. That's all I'm going to say uh, about that. But metaphorical images are of the subject this morning. Would you look at me with the, in the Gospel of John chapter 10 as we uh, look at this passage and focus in on it a little bit this morning? As Randy was saying, it is good. It, it's, it's pretty awesome to see how God works in your life. And uh, my wife and I have had the privilege of being used by him in some extraordinarily ways. And he's called us to plant a church in Rock Hill. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, planting is a very difficult thing. Um, I've heard some preachers describe it as the special forces of pastoring. Though I would not go that far, I will say it is a very difficult task. And so I do covet your prayers. My wife and my children covet your prayers for us as we uh, embark on that task to plant an Anglican church in Rock Hill. How many of you uh, remember a time when you might have been uh, a young child and you were with your parents or you were with someone and you got lost in a store or maybe you got lost at a park? I've been there. I, in fact, I can share a story with you. I was probably four or five years old. And uh, during that time, that was, that was back in uh, the late 70s. And so we had Rose's department stores back then. Y'all remember Rose's? So my mom and I, I went shopping with her. And we we're, were in the store. And she went to go ask a store, a store associate a question. And as a child, I went and wandered off. That's what some children will do. They will wander off and, and move away from their parent. And before I knew it, I realized my mom wasn't near me. And my mom realized that I wasn't near her. So the moment she realized that I wasn't near her, she started looking for me. So she's running all around the store. And the moment I realized that my mom wasn't with me, I started running around the store too. And I'm running into people and I'm asking, hey, have you seen my mom? I'm, I'm lost. I'm scared. I don't know where she is. I was frightened. My emotions were built up in a sense that I was very worried about what was going on. I could not find my mother. And all of a sudden, in a moment, I hear this. Patrick, Patrick. I knew that voice. I knew that voice was the voice of my mom. And the moment I heard that voice, I started approaching closer and closer to that voice. And finally, I saw my mom, and I ran to her, and I embraced her, and she started scolding me. <laughs> I think there is an important lesson to learn there. Um, we're going to talk about this morning about the voice, listening to the voice of the shepherd walking through the door and finding life. Our gospel passage this morning is John chapter 10, and it is a very familiar passage for those of us who are Anglicans who are used to the practice of hearing preaching from the gospel uh, Sunday lectionary passages, especially through Lent and Easter, through Epiphany, through Advent. And I want us to try to do something this morning. I want us to not focus on the familiar familiarity of this passage. I want us to really hear what God wants to say to us this morning, because I believe that there are some important things that you, King of Kings, can take away from this and use as the people of God. This Sunday is commonly known as Good Shepherd Sunday. It's the Sunday that we focus on Jesus as our Good Shepherd, the one who leads and guides and comforts his sheep, his people. And there is a very important and significant reason why we focus on this passage in Easter. And we're going to get there in a, in a minute. But what I would like to, for us to see is how this passage fits in the whole of John's gospel account. 
You see, God, John has constructed this account in such a way to show that God has been doing what he's been doing from the very beginning. Because when he writes in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Automatically, you begin to think about Genesis 1.1, don't you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is doing something here. He is wanting his audience, his readers, to reflect back on Genesis 1.1 in the beginning. He has, uh, he has also shown us in this, in, in this account another element to the creation narrative. He's added something to it. You see, it's not just that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It is in the beginning that the Word was with God. And He was with Him in the beginning. And He was the one through whom all things were made. It is John's purpose to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the one through whom God made all things. So he starts his gospel with creation. He goes back to the story of creation. But then he also enters into the story of Israel. Because he says in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us is the word that is described there that John uses. He tabernacled with us and we beheld him full of grace and truth. And so John's audience are already not only looking back at creation, they're looking back at the story of Israel with the tabernacle and God's presence being there with his people, with Moses and those who came out of the Red Sea. And all throughout the gospel of John, that has been his point all along, that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. Jesus is the one whom is the Messiah of Israel. But if you fast forward to John chapter 20, we see something very, very important. When we get to the end of John's gospel, we read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been rolled, had been taken away from the tomb. On the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Do you hear those words? Do you hear what John is driving at? Do you see that what John is doing is he is showing us that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, new creation has come into the world. New creation has sprung forth into old creation. So these words should draw for us a pattern. John is telling us that in Jesus, and particularly his resurrection from the dead, that new creation has begun, and there, and there has been a trajectory from creation in John chapter 1 to new creation in John chapter 20. And all the while throughout the whole gospel, his point has been to show, has been to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment that Israel was longing for. And as he came and as he taught and as he healed and as he brought miracles into this world, he was breaking forth in creation, new creation. He was bringing new creation to this world. He was beginning something new. And our passage, our gospel reading fits within this narrative very well. You see, John has a particular technique. In his gospel account, he gives a sign, and then there is a 
a dialogue, and then there is a discourse. And sometimes those are switched back and forth with each other. But whether he was turning water into wine, or whether he was feeding the 5,000, or whether he was raising Lazarus from the dead, or whether here in John chapter 9, our chapter before the passage we're looking at, he heals the, blind, the man born blind. So there is a context where we find our passage this morning that after Jesus has healed the blind man, we come to John chapter 10. And that's important. Because you don't want to read John chapter 10 without knowing what was said in John chapter 9. I want you to see that this blind, this man who was born blind, when Jesus heals him, that there is a dialogue between the blind man and Jesus, between the blind man and the Pharisees, between the Pharisees and the blind man's parents, and then again with the blind man and the Pharisees, and finally again concluding with the blind man and Jesus. And so that is our context. That's where we are in John 10. And I want you to notice two important things this morning. How Jesus identifies himself to the Jewish religious leaders and how Jesus identifies his followers and his disciples who receive him. How does Jesus identify himself? To answer the question, we must first come to understand who Jesus is not. He says in verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Again in verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And so given the backstory of Jesus healing the blind man in chapter 9, it doesn't take long to figure out who Jesus is partially referring to here as he refers to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day who cared nothing for the insignificant, who cared nothing for the lowly, who cared nothing for the lame, who cared nothing for the lepers, who cared nothing for the blind. You see, in the minds of the Pharisees, these folks were not deserving of mercy or grace or love or having access to, where, to the place where life could be found, which was in the temple. These type of people in the Pharisees' minds were not, were not worthy to enter into the presence of God because in their minds, these people were sinners. It was almost as if they were effectually saying that those people might as well go ahead and die because they're not worthy of God's grace. Jesus says, they are thieves and robbers. There were others, though, not just the Pharisees, but there were counterfeit messiahs before the time of Jesus of Nazareth, even during the time of Jesus of Nazareth, false messiahs who had come previously and, and led revolts and groups, but only to find, that when, to find that when they led their groups to death, they also died and they remained dead, and so therefore they were counterfeit and false messiahs who were trying to take away the sheep for their own purposes, for their own gain. Jesus says they are thieves and robbers. They are here today as well in our own time. They sit 
in quarter-million-dollar mansions preaching a gospel that claims if you give to them in their ministry, then in turn, God will bless you with riches and good health, and no harm will come upon you. In fact, if you happen to become ill with a serious disease, you will be healed from your disease. And if it so happens that you are not healed, then you just don't have enough faith. Jesus says they are thieves and robbers. Fake shepherds and false messiahs coming to make promises that can't be kept. And rather than leading them to abundant life, they have led them to death. Indeed, they come to steal and kill and destroy the sheep. But notice how Jesus describes himself in verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Rather than being the one who goes in in a different way, such as the thieves and the robbers, Jesus makes a contrasting and countering claim that the one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, even though Jesus doesn't make an exclusive claim here in this verse, of who he is. Nevertheless, in verse 11, he will make the claim, I am the good shepherd. He will make that claim. And so he refers to himself as the good shepherd, but notice that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, this verse gives commentary to verse 2. You see, the one who enters by the door is the one who is willing to lay down his own life Rather than lead his sheep to slaughter, he will be led to slaughter for the sake of his sheep. You see, Jesus was willing to enter into the door, and the door that was prepared for him was a door of sacrifice. It was a door where he had to give up his own life for the sake of the sheep. Thieves and robbers weren't willing to go in through the door because thieves and robbers weren't willing to lay down their life. But Jesus was willing to lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. But he doesn't just enter through the door as a good shepherd. Look at verse 7 and verse 9. He says it twice. He says, I am the door. What a strange image, right? I am the door or I am the gate. That is a very strange image. Kind of like someone describing me as a fairy, right? <laughs> I am the door, he says. But it's, it is significant when you look at the context of John chapter 9. Because the image of the door draws on this notion of being in or out in the temple of having access to the Father. We don't have time to go through John chapter 9, but I encourage you to read it today at some point in time because it is an interesting text. You see, the man born blind is healed by Jesus, and it's a very strange feeling. Imagine if you can't see anything and someone comes up to you and they rub mud on your eyes. And then he says to you, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. It takes faith to believe that what he just rubbed on your eyes is going to heal you. 
But the man who is born blind does. He listens to the voice of the shepherd, and he obeys the shepherd, and he goes to the pool of Siloam, and he washes the mud off his eyes, the mud that the, the man of God has made for him and put on his eyes. He goes and washes his eyes, and he receives sight. Imagine what that feeling might be. Imagine the jubilation you would have from going to a place where you could see nothing but darkness and hear everything around you. And then, just immediately, you're given the ability to see everything in color, in vivid color. Imagine that. The Pharisees don't believe it. They question whether or not he was actually born blind, and even as the blind man tells him, I tell you, the man has given me sight, they still don't believe it. They call for his parents and question and challenge the, the blind man's parents. And the parents who are afraid that they will be put out of the synagogue demand that the Pharisees go ask him himself, themselves because he's grown. And therefore, they don't want to speak for him because they don't want to put themselves in trouble with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day because they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. But the blind man is questioned again by the Pharisees. Questioned because they believe Jesus has committed a sin. They believe Jesus committed a sin by breaking the Sabbath, by healing a man on the Sabbath day, by making mud and putting it on a man's eyes, and the man was able to have sight when he washed the mud off his eyes. They believe that Jesus committed the sin. Not only that, because he was blind, he was unclean. And so Jesus was condemned for touching an unclean man on the Sabbath day. We get to the end of chapter 9 and verse 34 or 35, and the, it says to, it, it is written by John that the Pharisees have cast the blind man out. Do you know what it was like in the first century to be cast out of the synagogue? it meant that you lost community. It meant that you lost reputation. It meant that you lost image. It would be better for you to move to another place than to stay there. Because when you are cast out of the synagogue, you have no life. You are considered unclean. But Jesus says he's the door. He says I am the door. All who enter through this door will enter and find pasture. All who enter presumably in the sheepfold through him will be saved, will be able to go in and out and find pasture and find life. So Jesus is the door through which his sheep enter in and out. And indeed, by his death and resurrection, he offers his sheep access to this life, to this abundant life, to this pasture, to nourishment, to new creation. Which begs the question, how does Jesus identify his sheep? His sheep are those who hear his voice, and his sheep are those who receive his blessing of abundant life. You see, those who hear Jesus' voice, they follow him. They hear the Lord call out to them. 
and they followed him. And I know in our busy world today, it's hard to hear just one voice, right? We are surrounded by a multitude of voices in our society. And it's very difficult for us to discern which voice is the voice of the shepherd calling out to his sheep. I'll give you a very practical example. When we first moved back to Rock Hill two years ago, I said I was done with ministry. I needed a long break, maybe a perpetual long break. But my wife kept saying to me, are you sure? Are, are you sure? And I kept going on with that thought over and over in my head again and again and again. And I would keep saying, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I like working in Comporium, installing cable TV. But I kept getting this conviction, this voice. Will you go? Will you serve? Will you plant? And then one Saturday, I had the, I guess you could call it blessing, of speaking to Bishop Thad Barnum over Skype. And he said to me, I'm confirming to you through the Holy Spirit that you are not done in ministry and God wants you to plant a church in Rock Hill. I almost closed the laptop. Do we hear his voice? Do you hear his voice? Can I tell you two practical ways to hear his voice? Do you realize that God normally speaks to you through three different ways? Through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. Let me say that one more time. God speaks to you through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. Isn't it amazing that God chooses human beings to minister and nurture and affirm other human beings? God uses his spirit to speak to his people, and God uses his word to speak to his people. You spend time in the word. You abide in the word. Do you take enough time to listen and hear the voice? Because Jesus says his sheep hear his voice. They recognize it and they follow it. And if, you, if you've ever noticed that the, the word voice in the Bible is huge, it is amazing how often the word voice comes up. Psalm 95 Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, 
We Anglicans should be very familiar with that passage. That's in the prayer book for morning prayer. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. And so when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me, the Israelite in the first century is drawn back to Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice. But not only do his followers followers hear his voice and follow him, they also receive the great blessing of abundant life. How did the blind man understand his salvation immediately? The man born blind from birth is saved from isolation and marginalization. His healing saves him from everlasting darkness. Never again will, will he wonder where his next meal will be, or who will answer his pleas as he sits begging outside the city. Just think about it. His life is changed. He will know the safety and security of community. He will know the community that is spoken of in Acts 2. But eventually the man born blind comes to understand that abundant life is not just in the temporal The blind man had new creation come upon him and change his life forever. For though he was born blind, the Messiah entered into his life and gave him sight with new possibilities and outcomes. Provision, protection, and presence. That is the abundant life that Jesus promises to his followers. Not 50 cars, Not a million-dollar home. Not all the money in the world that you need to live off of. His provision. You see, he is our shepherd, and we shall not want. He provides. The image of the door asks of us effort, imagination, and personal involvement. We are to find the door and to pass through it. Jesus is the life, and we are to live life in his way and dwell in his truth that we may live his risen life because he's put new creation in us through the Holy Spirit. We have resurrection life within within us. That means knowing these things for ourselves, not knowing about them. It means real. It means personal. One of the things that the resurrection of Christ means is that all of the old criteria of judgment no longer apply. The ultimate criterion of death is no more. We are to be a people who measure, measure things by the resurrection life of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let there be an end to cynicism and despair. One of the things that I've come to realize as an Anglican is we do Lent so well, don't we? I mean, we just pour all our energy and our time and our effort into Lent. 
We're going to fast from something. We're going to take on something. And we're going to do it with a, a steadfast heart till we fail on the third day. <laughs> but what is it about Easter that we can't lift it up as a celebration that it was meant to be? Easter is the time when we celebrate the change of the world. Easter is the time when we celebrate the breaking forth of new creation. New creation has started in our Lord. Why is it we have a hard time of pouring our energy into that? Because Jesus didn't just come for us to suffer. And we will suffer when we follow in the steps of our shepherd. But he came so that we might have life and have it more abundant. What is abundant life to you? It's peace. It's provision. It's protection of the shepherd who walks with you, who leads you, who guides you, who speaks life to you, who feeds you at the table. That is the abundant life that Jesus gives us. And we need each other to see each other through the door so that we can find new creation life, resurrection life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.